Today we're going to talk about just an introduction to uh, Coptic praises. The intention here is not to talk about the spirituality of tasbiha, or tasbiha is the praises basically. It's the Arabic word for uh, praises. The intention is not to talk about the spirituality of it or the praises from the theological background. Maybe we, we have another lecture on that because it's really important and it's not a small topic. So the intention now is to talk about the origin of the praises in the Coptic Church and maybe a little bit about history and the structure of the praises. So praises are in the Coptic Church are prayers that are chanted before the raising of incense and during the night. Praises are part of the Coptic heritage. Uh, the Coptic heritage is not only um, beliefs, but it also has to do with um, uh, theology, the, um, the Coptic hymns, the language, a lot of things, a lot of aspects. One of them is Coptic praises. Originally, it was all psalms only, and this is why the book containing praises is called Psalmody. The first Psalmody book was developed by a bishop in the 3rd century called Nepos. Now to the structure of praises. We have three kinds of praises in the, in the Coptic Church. One before the Vespers raising of incense, and one during the night, and another one before uh, Matins raising of incense or, or Prime raising of incense. So um, maybe the, the deacons here would know that currently we have only two. And this is simply because the midnight praise and the matins praise were merged together in one praise only. And now it's called midnight praise. But originally there were three praises in the Coptic church. Vespers praise, midnight praise, and matins praise. If you look at the structure of the Vespers praise and the Matins praise, you will see that they are almost identical. They both start with the fourth canticle, then Sali, then Theotokia, then Antiphonary, and finally conclusion of the Theotokia. The structure is the same, except in uh, the Vespers praise, it starts with Psalm 116, Actually, this was prayed in all the churches, east and west, in the ancient church. The supplications at the end of the matins praise is originally an, a midnight praise element. So when they merged the two praises, they took this element and put it at the end of the matins praise. But originally, it was only starting from the fourth canticle and it ends with the conclusion of Theotokia. So you will see the similarities. Another point worth mentioning here is that the midnight praise is a monastic rite, whereas 
the matins and vespers praises are cathedral rites. So they were developed in the cities. But the midnight praise was developed in the monasteries. Midnight praise, this is according to the uh, Sunday rite, starts with the hymn uh, Tenthinu, Arise, O Children of, uh, of the Light. Uh, then the first canticle and its explanation, second and its explanation, third canticle, Sali, Tinin, explanation of the third canticle, which is the hymn Tin Uwehin Sok, and we're going to talk about this later on, commemoration of the saints and doxologies. The original elements in the midnight praise are basically the first Canticle, Al-Hus Al-Awwal. Hus meaning praise. It's a Coptic word meaning praise. Um, in the Catholic Church, it's called canticle. So the first canticle and its explanation, along with the third canticle, these two are the oldest praises in the uh, midnight praise and in the Coptic Church. Then comes the second canticle, and it's also an old one. Uh, it was mentioned by Saint Athanasius. So it goes back to the, maybe the third century. <coughs> so it's very, very old, uh, praise as well. But the oldest one is the, the oldest two are the first and third canticles and then the second canticle. So these, if you notice, they are very old and each one has an explanation. Khin Ushot is the explanation of the first canticle. Marin On is the explanation of the second canticle. Tin Uwehin Sok is the explanation of the third canticle. And then we find that in the 15th century, two hymns were introduced. The Sali, Arib Salin, and Tinin. Arib Salin was composed by a cantor called Sarkis, who became later on a priest. And Tinin, we don't know. All what we know is that it was developed in the 15th century because Ibn Kabar, who lived in the 14th century, didn't mention it in the list um, of praises to be chanted in the midnight praise. And Ibn Sibah from the 13th century didn't mention it as well. So, it start to be mentioned from the 15th century. It could be that Sarkis developed it as well because the first two verses of the hymn are in Greek and this is what Cantor Sarkis used, to, how he used to develop or compose hymns. If you notice, Arib Salin alternates Greek verse, then Coptic verse, same thing with the, the verses he, uh, or the hymns, uh, he put together during Kiyak, El Rumi. It was in Greek. And it's during his times as well. So maybe it, it's him who developed it, but it's not, uh, no evidence or not, nothing, um, for sure. Commemoration of the saints is not very old. Commemoration of the saints was not mentioned by Ibn Kabar as well. So 
So at least 15th century when it started. Uh, doxologies originally are not part of the midnight rite. They are part of the raising of incense, not the midnight praise. Okay? But this element was duplicated in the midnight praise. So the early structure of it was, as you, you can see it here, Tenthino, first canticle in its explanation, second canticle and explanation, third canticle and its explanation, and the supplications. Then later on, the commemoration of the saints was added, and then the two hymns, the Sali, Arib Salin, and Tinin, and then the doxologies. When they merged the matins praise with the midnight praise, they moved the supplications to the end. If you notice, the fourth canticle, which is praised in Vespers and Matins, there is no explanation for it, right? Which means that this was developed separately, not uh, not following the same structure of the midnight praise. Or the person or the people who developed it are different group, which is again proves the point that it was developed somewhere else and maybe uh, in another era altogether. Where did it all come from? So the first one is the Jewish tradition. We read in um, Matthew 26, uh, verse 30. This is after the Passover. After singing uh, the hymn again, this is Psalm 118, we read that they went out to the Mount of Olives so after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Scholars say that they went out was around 11 p.m. when they chanted Psalm 118. So as part of the Jewish tradition, they used to chant some of the Psalms after the Passover and uh, they had uh, something called Habura. Um, which is basically meals for a group of friends or family, at least 10 people in the, in the, in the group. And it has some rituals. And at the end of it, they had singing. So the Jewish influence. Another one was the instructions of Jesus himself. In Matthew 24, verse 42, Jesus says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And in uh, chapter 25, verse 13, he says, So stay awake, because you don't know the day or the hour. The monks took this literally, and they wanted to stay awake the whole night, or most of the night. How would they do this? They created midnight praise to stay awake and wait for Jesus. So this is how it started. Ways for chanting the praises. The oldest way is choir. 
this is how it used to be in the beginning. Then, antiphonal singing, which was originated basically from the uh, Syrian church, and then taken after that in the Coptic church, but originally it was in the Syrian church, which probably took it from the uh, Jewish synagogues. And most of the praises or most of the hymns in the midnight and the vespers and matins praises are chanted in this uh, way. Uh, Like two choirs, and each one would sing um, a verse uh, and they alternate the singing. It could be one verse or two verses and two verses. The third way is uh, the responsive singing, which is basically one person, the cantor or um, the deacon or a priest, sing the whole verse, and there is a response or a refrain to be chanted by the choir or the congregation. An example is the old way of chanting the second canticle. Saint Athanasius mentioned that um, the second canticle used to be prayed this way. The cantor would sing the verse and the congregation would respond with Yeah, And this is why you would see that the refrain is the same in all the verses. So it's easy for the congregation to learn and memorize and they don't need books. At that time, there were no books, right? So it was difficult unless you actually know the verses by heart, you cannot really chant as a as congregation. So it would make more sense that the, whoever has the book or memorize it, chants the verses and the congregation just chants the, the last part. The fourth way is solo, which is rare in the church. It's usually with um, uh, readings. So the Pauline, the Catholic epistle, uh, the gospel, uh, reading a psalm during the Pascha week or during the liturgy. So most probably these are dedicated for readings, not for uh, chants or uh, hymns. For the lyrics, we have three sources. The first one is the Bible itself. So we have examples like the canticles. We see that the first canticle is Exodus 15, verses 1 to 21. The second canticle is Psalm 135. The third canticle is Daniel uh, 3, 52 to 88. The fourth canticle consists of three psalms, Psalms 148, 149, and 150. We have the Father's writings. Um, so example is the hymns for the Theotokia, and Theotokia is the means the bearer of God, or sometimes translated as mother of God. And those a lot of those verses come from the writings of Saint Cyril the First and the fathers of um, the Council of Nicaea. The third source is cantors and sometimes priests. Obvious example 
is the Salis. And we're going to talk about Salis later on. As for the music, who composed them? Who come up with this kind of music? When the first Christians started to preach Christianity in Egypt, they sometimes they used existing melodies and just changed the words. But for the most part, they used the existing heritage or musical culture of Egypt at that time. If you hear a song for the first time, you're able to recognize if this is rock music, Spanish music, Greek music, Turkish music, Arabic music. You can easily categorize it, right? Although it's the first time you hear the song. Same thing here. The Egyptians developed most of these hymns based on their musical background, the Egyptian musical background. So it's important to realize that this kind of music is very ancient, before 2,000 years ago. One of the characteristics of the Coptic hymns music is that it is different from the secular music. At the time when they created it, not only now. So, 1500 years ago or 2000 years ago, when Christianity started in Egypt uh, and started, they started to develop new hymns, they made sure that the music is different than the secular music. And they had, as I was talking to some of you last Saturday, they had theological background for that. And the reason is they wanted the people, when they entered the church, to feel that this is different than what you, you're used to outside the church. You are now in the earthly heaven, let's say. So everything is different. The language is different, the music is different, what you smell is different with the incense and what you see is different. The people are, the deacons and the, the, the priests are wearing weird clothes, different than what we wear now. So everything is different. This is why, why is this? The church wants the people to feel that they are not in just any place they went to. It's the church, it's the heaven on earth. So intentionally they wanted to make the music different than the secular music. Characteristic is that they had the same ways of teaching. If you look at the picture here, you will see that on the right, one of the ancient Egyptians cantors passing down a religious melody. On the left, it's cantor Mikhail al-Batanuni teaching Coptic hymns. The difference in time is about more than 2,000 years. And if you notice, maybe here you cannot see the, the mouth, but some scientists say that even the mouth, the way they produce the voice, is similar. But at least here you can see the hands, how they hand down the, the hymns. So very similar methods, and this is very unique to the Coptic Church, 
Um, and we'll come back to this later. Uh, another, some other sources, it was influenced by Jewish music due to the Jews who converted to Christianity and to, there were a lot of um, synagogues in uh, Alexandria. Same thing with Greek. Until now, there is a lot of Greek um, people in, um, in Alexandria and there was um, an attempt in the 19th century to unite both Coptic Church and Greek Church. And this project was uh, during the Pope uh, Cyril IV. And this is in 19th century. Yes, yes, for sure. And actually, during David's times, um, if uh, it's mentioned in the Bible that they had 4,000 chanters praying 24 hours a day. And he grouped them into four. So every thousand chanter would take a shift, basically. Six hours. So it was praising the whole day. And they were paid to do this. And to me, this is a very um, good measure of the level of spirituality of the church and the children of God. How much you spend on praising God and how important it is to support the service of praises. So another influence is the Turkish and Arabic music, which mainly uh, in the hymns that were, were developed from maybe the 14th, 15th centuries. Music notations. The Coptic Church is the only church that has no musical notations. I'm not saying that this is a good thing. No, it's just a fact. Even the Ethiopian church has musical notations. Ironically enough, the earliest manuscript containing lyrics and musical notations of a hymn was Egyptian. It was found in Al-Bahnasa, in Ilminia, in Upper Egypt. This is dated back to the 3rd century. It's very old, very old attempt to, uh, to have musical notations for, for hymns. The manuscript was discovered by uh, Grenfell and Hunt in 1918. And Professor Egon Wells was able to decode its Greek vocal notation. And actually, I have that here. I hope you can hear it. Sinatom 
attempts in the last two centuries to notate the Coptic hymns. There was one by the Jesuit fathers. Uh, there was another one by Rizallah Semeka. Another one by Father Botros Awadallah. Another one by Mr. Kamil Ibrahim. But the most notable one and serious one was the one supervised and funded by Dr. Raghib Muftah. I'll move on to the last part. Some quick background in regards to specific praises. First canticle, which we, we said before that it's the oldest, it's the praise of victory. The church and this one celebrates the victory. How the Lord help the Jews or the Israelites to get out of Egypt. So this is the victory. In, um, and as I mentioned in the beginning of the lecture, this is together with the third canticle is considered the oldest praises. And it's followed by explanation. The second canticle is the praise of thanksgiving. If you notice the refrain, His mercy endures forever repeats 28 times. And the reason is, if you read Matthew 1.17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So basically the 28 is from David to the Messiah. 28 generations as if the church wants to say since the psalm was composed in David's times and in every generation since then until the Messiah comes his mercy endures forever and this one is followed by a lopsh as well lopsh means explanation third canticle praise um, of the three youth as they were in the middle of the fire and still praising God, this is how the church should react to the world. The next one is Aripsalin. Aripsalin was composed, as I mentioned in the beginning, in the 15th century by Cantor Sarkis, who became later on a priest. Uh, the odd verses are in Greek and the even verses are in Coptic. Tenuwehen Sok is the lopsh of or the explanation of the third canticle and until last century, the 20th century, it used to be chanted before Aripsalin in its original place right after the third canticle like the first and second canticles. But last century it was moved after Tenin and before 
the commemoration of the of the saints. And if you notice, most probably it's because it's uh, it's music. The last few verses lead smoothly into the commemoration of the saints. So probably this is why they moved it. it of course, it wouldn't have been a problem if they didn't add Aripsalin and um, and Tenin. It would have been. Uh, after the third canticle, the explanation and goes smoothly into the commemoration of the saints. It is the prayer of Azariah, who is one of the three youth, while he was in the fire. And this is in, if you want the reference, it's Daniel 3, 41 and 42. The fourth canticle, it's one of the main elements of the Vespers and Matins praises, Again, it's a cathedral rite. It was developed in the cities and it doesn't have a lopsh because it's not monastic rite. And the, the three Psalms, 148, 149, and 150, were very old and used to be chanted in the Jewish synagogues as well. Salis. Sali means spiritual song. They were developed recently, most of them after the 15th and 16th centuries, and most of them, especially the ones for Kiyak in the 17th and 18th centuries. For each occasion, there are different salis, and they are usually personal prayers. So in the church, we have general prayers, especially in the liturgies, but the salis are personal. So you can basically pray it on your own and you will see that it's really personal. And it's even using the uh, the I, not we. Right? So it's very personal. Yeah, my Lord Jesus Christ, not our Lord. So it's very personal. Theotokia came from Theotokos, meaning bearer of God or uh, mother of God. It's an old element, probably uh, was composed in the 5th century. Each day of the week has a Thotukiya. Ibn Kabar uh, from the 14th century said that the music of the Thotukiya was composed by a monk of St. Macarius Monastery. He didn't mention his name. He claims that the lyrics for the Thotukiya were written by Saint Athanasius, but most of the scholars now say it's this is not true, and they say that most probably it's uh, were taken from the writings of Saint Cyril the First and the fathers of uh, the Council of Nicaea. Pope Benjamin, the Pope number thirty-eight, and this was in the sixth century is the one who asked all the churches to start using the Theotokiyat. But in Upper Egypt, they didn't really do that. So this was implemented in uh, Lower Egypt, Cairo, Alexandria, but not in Upper Egypt. It started to be used in Upper Egypt in the 14th century, very late. And I'm done. Okay, good question. So, Adam is basically Adam. 
So it's the the name came from the Monday Theotokia, which starts with Adam. So this is why they have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday called Adam. Watus, uh, yeah, burning bush or the fiery bush, whatever you want to call it, this is the Theotokia of Thursday. And this is why the, the, the remaining of the week is called Watus. Now, if you come to the liturgy, you will find that we have Adam Asbasmus and Watus Asbasmus. And both of them are prayed in the same day. So it's not specific to the day. Any explanation? Do you guys know? Exactly. Exactly. So it's basically, think of this as the short and the long tunes. Short tune is the Adam. Long tune is the Watus. In some rites, they keep the short tune for few days, three days, and the long tune for four days. And in other rites, they, they have both of them in the same day. So it's not, the origin is not the day, the origin is the tune, not the day. We know orthodoxy is the right way of worship, and it's, um, it's based upon the apostles, original disciples, the liturgy of St. James, for example, is very old. Now my question to you is, with these changes that are happening up until the 20th century, which you mentioned, um, is that compromising the um, orthodoxy, the original um, flavor that the disciples originally would have imparted on their divine liturgy? I don't think so, because when we talk about orthodoxy, the main part is the beliefs. When St. Mark came to Egypt and preached Christianity, he didn't teach them how to sing. He didn't teach them how the Jews used to, ch to, to chant in the synagogues. He didn't teach them the, the Hebrew, right? So it's based on each culture. It's up to them how to come up with the tradition. So we have Coptic tradition, we have Greek tradition, we have Syriac tradition, tradition. We have a lot of traditions. We have Roman tradition, Russian tradition. So how to express the faith is up to each nation. Each nation has its own way of expressing their beliefs. So, for example, you will see that the rites in the Coptic church is different than the rites in the Greek church. Although maybe, I would say, maybe 95% of the, the, the faith is the same. But the rites, that how you express it, is based or depends on the culture of each one. Especially the, between the Orthodox churches and also, I would say, even the, the Catholic churches. A lot of the theology is almost the same. Few differences, but wouldn't affect the rites that much. What would affect the rites is the culture. Same thing with the, if you, if you notice, if you see the, the Coptic hymns, for example, the characteristics of the Coptic hymns are very unique to the Egyptians, to Egypt, the ancient Egyptians, how they used to sing. We can talk about this some other time and how they used to elongate in the vowels. And this is, again, this is Egyptian tradition, ancient Egyptian tradition. They used to do that, and they had reasons for that. 
and the numbers like seven and the seven angels and all this stuff, a lot of this also is coming from Egyptian culture. So to answer your question, I don't think that this compromises the faith or, or the orthodoxy of the church. As long as we keep the faith and the core of the tradition, so the concepts, how to implement them, this is based on the time and the people and a lot of other factors. I'll give you an example that we were talking about <clears throat> last Saturday. It just came to my mind. One of the traditions in the Coptic Church is to have the music, its music, different than the secular music. Why is that? The core is to have, again, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, you want the congregation to feel that they are in some pl other place different than the world, right? This theology is respected in the Catholic Church, in the Eastern Churches. If you go to any of them, you will see that the religious music is different than the secular music. Until now, they are all different, but they have the same theology. They, ha they want to deliver the same message. On the other hand, the Protestant church has a different theology. They think that uh, in order to uh, spread the faith or express the faith, you have to, to use the contemporary music. What you have, what, what people listen to now and change the lyrics. Different theology. I'm not arguing that this is right or wrong or this is, this is the right one or the, all what I'm saying is it's theology. Keep the theology and the idea behind the tradition. How to express it? This is up to the culture and up to the generation, like the, the era and the times you're developing this tradition. More questions? I think that we should differentiate between two things here. One is the mission churches, and the other is Coptic churches, even if they are Coptic English churches. So if it is a mission church, we have to be equipped to really be a mission church. And I don't think that we're ready yet. But apart from this, I think the best form for this is what St. Mark did. He came to Egypt, delivered the faith, and he didn't care about the culture. He didn't care about the music. He didn't care about the rights. It's up to each culture to develop how to express the faith. So this is for mission churches. So for mission churches... I think the best way, if we want to be successful and spread the faith, is to evacuate the orthodoxy from the culture. Separate them. Deliver the faith. And it's up to the people, the converts, to use their own music, their own rights, to develop their own tradition. As long as they keep the faith and the 
core of the tradition. For the other Coptic English churches, Coptic English churches, so you're talking about next generations, I think we should keep the tradition and the heritage of the church, keep the identity of the church. Um, even if we chant the hymns in English, but I think that they should be in the Coptic tunes. Yeah. They come from different backgrounds, and this is why if we want to accommodate them, we should be ready for that. But for people who are coming from the same background, the Coptic background, whether that be Arabic or English, so, for example, the Arabic. Arabs entered Egypt in the 7th century. And until now, we don't hear that we have to change the whole rites and culture, although we change and we speak Arabic, right? So it's the same thing. We keep the, the Coptic tradition, Coptic uh, culture, but even if we, if we pray the liturgy in Arabic, same thing with English. If you're coming from this background, this is what I think. Keep the identity of the church, but still uh, let the people pray. So pray with their language, and it wouldn't harm to have Coptic, uh, some parts in Coptic, so people keep the, the heritage. But for converts, I think it should be a complete rewrite of the rights. Right.